Well, obviously, Kevin has asked me to fill his shoes again this morning, and I'm happy to do it. Uh, I was outside in the foyer earlier before the service started, and Jim Sandberg came up to me, and uh, he said, Peter, how are, how are you doing? And I exchanged the requisite, yes, that's part of our social pleasantries that we do, or, or that I'm doing well, and yes, how are you, those social pleasantries. And, and Jim stopped, and I, and I wasn't allowed to come into the sanctuary yet. He started poking me in the chest. I mean, I still am like a little bit bruised, Jim. And, uh, and, and it feels very different now than maybe when I was 10 and you were poking me in the chest for very different reasons around here as I was running roughshod through Sunday school. But you poked me in the chest and you said, do you really mean it? Do you really mean it? And then you asked me to grade. Am I at about a B plus or an A minus? And, you know, and you know me well enough that I didn't uh, come back with some sort of Christian, you know, cliche like, well, God is good or I have victory in Jesus or something like that. I actually paused to think about it and I said, you know, Jim, I actually am doing well. And the reason for it, and when Kevin asked me to do these things, is in the midst of all the preparation and planning and stuff that goes into just even doing a sermon, it's really helpful to just step back and think, you know, this is so much less about the sermon and more about the kingdom. And in terms of my mind's eye, when I think about the kingdom, I think of the people in the kingdom that have said yes to following the risen rabbi and walked out this journey of life. And you're one of those people that I've known for a number of years, and you sort of uh, sit there as an archetype of so many here at church that I've known and have enjoyed walking out the kingdom journey with. So when I say that I'm glad to be here and just play whatever part I can in the ministry of the word, thank you for poking me in the chest because it made me think about it for a bit this morning and enter into that which really matters. With that, let's pray as we head to the word and we'll get into this crazy stuff on end times this morning, okay? God, I ask that uh, by your spirit, you would um, continue to do your work among us. The work that you have done in the past and all of our lives would, would continue to be transformative into our future until the veil that separates this world from the next is pierced for us and your kingdom comes. Do your work among us by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, Kevin asked me, uh, and Andrew, if you can put the slide up on the screen, he asked me to join him in uh, this text. And that's not the text that I'm working off of. Was it <laughs> Matthew 24? I think that we're working off, right? Of this one will these things be on that. So we'll go back to that text. But unless Kevin and I got our wires crossed, which I can make up another sermon on the spot, I think. <laughs> but it might be a little dicey, okay? So we'll just uh, pretend that that was a computer glitch. Uh, maybe Joel is having a little fun on our behalf uh, this morning. And, uh, and go with it. But as Kevin and I talked, and my understanding of the preparation was that we were in Matthew 24. He was in Matthew 24 last week, correct? In terms of the disciples. Okay, good. I see the nodding of heads. Phew. I even listened to a sermon last week. I would have been really confused. Uh, and, and the point of the Matthew text is that uh, the disciples have come to Jesus. And they're asking him, when will these things be? Meaning some of the signs of the end. And Jesus answered them. And Kevin uh, did some work last week just about how some of those things were likely thought of in first century Judaism and how they would have understood some of those things. And in his email to me in preparation, he said, <laughs> you get the text, Peter. So he gets to sign the text, right? He says, you get the text where it starts out that the son of man knows neither the hour or the day and ends with the section where it says, and yea, he will cut them into pieces. <laughs> and he said, I figured that'd be right up your alley. And I thought, thanks a lot, Kevin. 
So I do think it's an interesting text. We're not going to stray too far into it because there's so much there. And frankly, we could spend several weeks on the text. But as I was doing the preparation, the thing that stood out for me and related to the sermon title is these words that Jesus says, where he does say, you know, it's not even for the Son of Man to know the hour or the day. And I think what was interesting to me about those words is just connecting them to so much of my own journey and the journey of others I've known is that just because the Son of Man says that he doesn't know the hour or the day, it really hasn't stopped any of us from trying to figure it out, right? We sort of all have our ideas and thoughts and theories, and and it's understandable. I mean, it's hard not to think about these things and to wonder about them, to wonder where we are in eternity. As time is part of spinning through history of this world, where where that stands in the broader scope of things, and maybe we're going to get a chance to see the end of all things in our generation. While I was thinking about that, I, I recognized that this thinking about maybe we're getting close to the end and wondering where we are is not unique to our generation. I uh, went back into some websites and research, and I found that uh, history is littered, in fact, with assumptions and predictions and questions and thoughts as to when Jesus is coming back. And obviously, up until now, none of them have been right. That back to the Thessalonians, one of my favorite letters in the text. And the reason why Paul had to write these guys a letter was because the Thessalonian people really believed that they were in the final stages of history, that they were living in the end. And even to some degree, some of them may have already started exiting their physical body and into their spiritual body. And Paul has to write this corrective to them because as a result, they had all stopped working. (laughs) They sort of sat around and they sang Kumbaya and ate a little bit and hung out. And Paul's like, no, I mean, Give the Thessalonians credit, right? If, we re- if you're really committed that this is it, right, why not stop working? Now, the next group uh, beyond that were the people of the book of Hebrews. And they uh, had some concerns in their time. They really believed that Jesus would return before most of them died. And as t- uh, the time went on when Jesus ascended into the heavens and some of the Hebrew people were being persecuted and some were even dying for their faith, many of them began to walk away from Christianity. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews says to them, now hang on for a minute. Jesus really is who he said he was. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the angels. That whole sequence that goes on in the book of Hebrews to show that Jesus really is that one culminating in this wonderful passage of Hebrews 11 about the people of faith who have gone before. And the writer says, you know, just keep in mind that faith is an assurance of those things that we hope for and a certainty of the things which we do not see. And the author says, you know, the ancients that have gone before us were commended for walking out the journey of faith, even though that which was promised to them and even though that which they hoped for had not yet come true. And they had to walk through the veil of this life into the next before those future promises were real. And the writer to Hebrew says, those are the people of faith. Those are the ancient ones that we want to follow. Now, as I did some further research, I found an early Christian leader, Montanus, who believed that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to give instructions about how to prepare for the coming doom. He was even so persuasive that he compelled an early church leader, Tertullian, to join him in that. Obviously, 
he was wrong. In the fourth century, St. Martin of Tours wrote this. I found this interesting, that there is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established now early in his years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. Now, in the year 1000 A.D., when the calendar flipped over from 999 to 1000, it induced widespread panic among Christians of that time. And they didn't even need computer glitches to get them all worked up, right? You know, the Y2K and the planes dropping out of the sky just uh, 12 years ago. Pope Innocent III was convinced the world would end in 1284 A.D. because by his calculations, it was 666 666, years after the rise of Islam. So that was the year that the world was going to end. Even our esteemed Wesley brothers, Charles and John, forerunners of the Protestant faith, both gave their best shot at a date and both proved wrong. Of course, recently we had Pat Robertson predict that the end of the world was coming in October or November of 1982. He said this in a May 1980 broadcast of the 700 Club. I guarantee you that by the end of 1982, there is going to be a judgment on this world. 1988, if some of you remember, it saw the rise of Mikhail Gorbachev in Russia and his glass-nosed policy of openness that came at the height of some of the tensions in the Cold War. And people in our country, I remember, and Christians in particular, were very skeptical of this open policy, right? Because he, I mean, he had this mark on his head, right? I mean, it was so obvious that it was the mark of the beast. I mean, we can't trust this guy. Turns out the mark apparently came only because he had trouble getting through the birth canal. Last year, Harold Camping, if you know that name from the headlines, right, pastor in our country, managed to make not one, but two predictions about the end of the world. He realized, surprisingly, that he missed it in his calculations. I think it was in April. So he refigured everything and rejiggered all of the signs and came up with, I think it was October 21st last year. And of course, we missed that one. And now this year, we're anxiously awaiting. And I've got the little countdown clock on my computer. I know where to find it. We're anxiously awaiting what? December 21st, the mysterious end of the Mayan calendar. This is it. I mean, those guys had access to astrology and all sorts of other stuff that we don't know. And they ended their calendar. So this is the one. This is where it's going to. I can't wait for December 21st. I'm going to stop working in about a month, actually, in preparation for that. So I think it's interesting, and and even in light of all these failed predictions throughout history, I still, personally, I still find it hard to ignore the question. How close are we to the end? It's such an interesting and compelling conversation. And I think for me, it's made more interesting, especially as I've now crossed the threshold, just just barely, but I've crossed the threshold into my 40s. And I realize I sort of have this existential anxiousness about the fact that, you know, my, my death is looming, right? And doesn't it feel like it would just be so, yeah, I know, it's, I know, I know. But it just feels like it'd be so much easier if he would just come, right? And I wouldn't have to take that journey. And I wouldn't have to walk those final steps. 
and I wouldn't have to pierce the veil from this side into the next. It just feels like it'd be easier. So it just becomes a little bit more interesting each year that goes by. So in light of that, instead of ignoring the question, I figure it's probably always a good idea to be real about stuff and try to at least talk about it (laughs) a bit this morning. And in saying that, I'm certainly not going to offer some prediction about when the end is going to be. Um, Joel Bowers did come to me before service, and he said he does have a date, and so he's going to end our service this morning with that date. It'll be a little awkward, but just, you know, indulge him a bit. <laughs> Where is Joel? Is Joel in here right now? I don't see him yet. Oh, I heard, I heard him. There he is. So, Joel, thank you, and I won't, I just set you up. That's all I did, okay? I won't say any more. What I would like to do in trying to walk through some of this is at least talk through on somewhat of a survey basis how Christians and Christian scholars have thought about this issue of the end of the age throughout the course of history and just even deal with some of the speculation and some of the ways in which people try to approach the subject, recognizing that that'll take the bulk of the first part of the sermon. And then at the end, just briefly, we'll close and maybe we'll transition from some of the predictions to potentially some things we can say that we know. Okay. So if that is a quick outline and getting started, I think one helpful starting place in this conversation is to recognize a place where many biblical scholars have agreed over the years. And that is this idea that as history is unfolding uh, throughout the course of time and this world is spinning towards its conclusion, that there is this sense that history from a kingdom perspective is going to get worse and worse, and more difficult, and difficult, and increasingly so as we near the end. And the reason for that perspective comes from some of the words in Jesus in Matthew 24, 3 through 8, where when his disciples say, when will these things be, Jesus responds and saying, hey, don't be alarmed. There will be many false teachers that are raised up. There will be wars and there will be rumors of wars, and there will be disease and pestilence and famine and all of these things, but, but just recognize that these things must be. And they're just the beginning of birth pains. And that's where that analogy of birth pains, I think, really gives us some idea of uh, potentially how this is going to unfold. Because birth pains, as an analogy, and for those of you that have had children, you know, is that prior to the end stages of giving birth, Before that, there are all sorts of signs and symptoms that sort of foreshadow the coming end, right? You might have Braxton Hicks contractions. They might be somewhat irregular. They all foreshadow the end birth, but none of them in and of themselves is the end. It's not until the contractions become regular. And it's not until they are, and I've been through this five times with my wife, that they're about five minutes apart, we rush to the hospital, and, uh, and they're regular, and they increase in their intensity and, and frequency and the pain associated with them, that then the birth will happen. So scholars take that analogy, and they will say, uh, be on the lookout, because even though there will be wars and rumors of wars and abominations and famine and disease, that even though those things may be, look towards when there is a sudden increase in them. When the severity of them is on the rise, then you will know that the season of the end is near. Okay? Now, later on, I'll try to at least talk about some of the speculation that's out there. But just keep that in your mind's eye, that that's one place of general agreement. Uh, right or wrong, it's still speculation, but that the world is spinning on its axis through history, and it's going to get worse and worse as we go. 
Now, from this point, scholars are deeply divided about how it is we can determine how we are going to get to the end of the world. And these are some concepts that you might be familiar with will start emerging. And there's lots of different theories and ideas that I don't have time to go through them all with you this morning. So I'll try to pick out two that are the most familiar, probably, to us. The first one is that uh, some scholars will say, well, what we really need to do is look at the text in Revelation and in Daniel and try to sort out what those texts are saying, uh, saying to us about how close the end of the world is. And they take what's called the futurist way of understanding this, meaning that if we can look at Revelation and Daniel the proper way, it will give us clues and it will give us hints about how close we are and how it's all going to unfold in the end. Okay, This was the position, I think, first put forth by a 16th century Jesuit monk named Francisco Ribera. Okay? But it was made very popular in the last couple generations by a man named Hal Lindsey. Remember Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth? He took on this view, and even more recently, Timothy LaHaye and Jenkins made this view popular in their series, The Left Behind series. Okay? And generally speaking, in this view then, the way scholars approach this is they look at Daniel's dreams and John's revelation, and they say, these guys, there is no way they could have understood what they were seeing back then. They were seeing things in the future. And I even remember this Hal Lindsey comic book that I had of all of these futuristic kinds of events that were going on. And so John saw all of these things and he was seeing like nuclear warfare in the internet or artificial intelligence or robots or world nations rising that didn't exist in his day, all of these things. And he didn't know what to do with it. And so what he did is he just tried to communicate the best he could in the images of his day what he was seeing in the future. Okay, does this make sense so far? Okay. And so that's why uh, people like Hal Lindsey and others, they would say that the fiery destruction seen by John was actually nuclear warfare. The locusts in Revelation were actually Apache helicopters filled with soldiers. Europe plays a key role in all of this as a community of 10 nations. And so if you're keeping track, if we can just get rid of Greece, Spain, Italy, I think Cyprus is on the verge and a few more, then we'll get to those 10 nations in Europe from which the Antichrist will rise. You have some other symbolism there that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 that testify to the whole world that Jesus is who he says he is, that they are doing that. And the reason why the whole world can see them is because of the power of television. And scholars will say in this idea of futurism that John was actually seeing a television and he just called it a sea of glass. He didn't know what it was. Okay. There'll be a powerful world leader, the Antichrist, and uh, he will with him, uh, uh, beasts will arise and the number of the beast, of course, we're probably familiar with is this number 666. And some people think it's going to be the equivalent of like a, a cattle iron branded on people's heads. I actually read a scholar from Texas, of course, right, this week who was pretty convinced that it was a branding iron and stuff. And I just thought if I see that branding iron at some point, I'm just going to try to duck and run. Other people would say that uh, perhaps what it is is some sort of microchip 
in which the numbers 666 are part of a long string of numbers and it gets embedded into our skin, right? Kind of like a UPC code. And uh, the text says that we can't get provisions if we don't have the mark of the beast. And so this is sort of our little computer generated chip that maybe, I don't know, Lund scans or something like that. And then I can buy my apples. Uh, It's along those lines in terms of the mark about how people look at it. And the point is, is that John was seeing all this stuff. And so was Daniel. But because of his future, they didn't understand what it was. So they were just trying to use imagery the best they could. One other piece of this that will probably sound familiar is that futurists will like to look at numbers in the text. And numbers have a certain kind of meaning to try to map out how close we are to the end. And, and, and as these visions are becoming more possible, we must be getting closer. One of the numbers that's really important is this idea of a great tribulation that will happen in the last seven years of history. And they base this interpretation on one of the prophecies in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel talks about 70 weeks that will pass, and, uh, and scholars will say, and try to hang with the math on this, that each of these 70 weeks represents a seven-year period of time. And we've seen 69 of those weeks pass because there was 483 years or 69 times 7, there's 483 years that passed between Daniel and Jesus. And now we're just in an age of the church history that we're waiting for that 70th and final week, that last seven-year period, with the thought being that uh, it's going to be a period of chaos and misery. And the reason for that is the last concept, and then we'll go to the next theory. The last concept has to do with the rapture of the church. Okay? And... In this rapture, the reason why these last seven years are going to be so filled with chaos and misery is because the church in this great historical event is going to disappear in the twinkling of an eye. And this world will be bereft of the presence of the spirit as seen in his bride, the church. And so it's going to tip into misery, the rise of the Antichrist, all of that. And the support for this idea of rapture came from the text in Matthew 24, that if we had time to read it this morning, you would see that imagery of one's working in the field and they're suddenly taken, right? Or one is working by the millstone and they're suddenly taken and the other is left behind. And scholars will look at that passage, combine it with 1 Corinthians 15:22 or uh, 52, about a trumpet being blown and people disappearing and we end up with the rapture. Now, for me, I can't help but hear the word rapture and think of a story that uh, travels around Bethel University where I teach. And I don't know if it's urban legend or if it actually happened, but the more I hear of it, the more I think it it actually happened. And that was that uh, some young men, I think it was, uh, they were in their residence hall, in their dorm hall area, and uh, there's probably 20 young men that will live on the same floor. And I think they got the idea for a practical joke of some kind. And what they did is they all folded their clothes neatly on their beds and arranged all of their stuff, you know, their toothbrushes and everything in the bathroom. And they got it all set up and then they all hid because they knew one member of their floor was going to be walking in shortly. And as that member walked into the dorm room floor, somebody had trumpets. They blew the trumpets and they all looked like they had all disappeared, right? And I guess the kid like legitimately freaked out about what happened. I thought, I mean, I think it's absolutely fabulous uh, on that. I mean, I think we ought to try that to Kevin next week, right? I mean, just to see 
Yeah, he may not know we're starting at 10 o'clock now, so maybe he gets there early and you just leave your stuff strewn all over and Joel will blow the trumpet and Kevin and maybe he'll get down and pray the prayer of faith right on the spot. <laughs> okay, so that's the main idea of the futurist interpretation. It is speculation. It is interesting to talk about and it could be right. One other view uh, here briefly before we transition into maybe some things we say that we know is that in contrast to the futurist, there's known uh, there's what is known as the idealist view. And by idealist, I don't mean like zealous. It just means it's there's sort of the symbolic ideals of the text. And these scholars would agree with the birth pains idea, but they would argue that revelation is not a roadmap for the end. Rather, it's a book full of numbers and symbols to teach us a key point. And that point is that there will always be an ongoing cosmic struggle between good and evil. That's always going to be that way. And it'll continue to be that way until the end when Jesus returns. This was the point of view of early church fathers like Origen or St. Augustine would have argued for this particular point of view to look at the Revelation text allegorically and to recognize they would say that it's part of a, a category of scripture that's called apocalyptic writing. And what they'll point out, and this was actually surprising to me when I first learned this, that there were at least 200 different apocalypses traveling around the Mediterranean world during the time of Jesus. And John's was the only one that made it into our text. But all of these apocalypses, the point was, is that for people in persecution or people wondering about their faith, the point was to, to broaden their eyesight a bit and say, hey, you are just part of the ongoing and eternal cosmic struggle between good and evil. And just know that the side on which you serve will win in the end. So continue to walk out your faith. That would have been the thinking around some of that. And so scholars from this field, in trying to understand what Revelation is saying, will try to get back into some of the symbolism and numerology of the Jews. And even saying the word numerology feels kind of kooky to me in the pulpit. I feel like Harry Potter's going to emerge or something right on the spot. Uh, it just it seems kind of weird, right? But that's what scholars do. And they look at uh, Jewish numerology in this. And they look particularly at this number seven. And the number seven in the Jewish tradition is uh, it's used fairly often. And then, in fact, it's used over 600 times in the biblical text. And what scholars from this field will argue is that the number seven represents the, the completion or the perfection of something that God is doing. The completion or perfection of something that God is doing. So there were seven days of creation where God promises sevenfold wrath and vengeance on anyone harming Cain. Jacob served Rachel for seven years before they got married, and that was a period of, of completion for that. Nebuchadnezzar turned up the furnace fire seven times hotter than usual, symbolizing that it was basically as completely hot as it possibly could be. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast from her, and that just represented, in their mind, that represents the fullness of the demonic influence in her life. Thus, there are seven churches in Revelation to whom letters are written, representing just the complete church that needs to hear this message throughout time. There are seven seals and seven trumpets, or the idea of complete and perfect judgment coming. Okay? 
Now, the number six is not as often used in Judaism, but it relates to seven in some people's eyes as falling just short of this perfect and holy and complete number seven. And so six for some of these scholars will represent the idea of perfect imperfection or complete imperfection. Thus, the mark of the beast is 666, um, representing this complete imperfection compared to the number of holiness. I don't, this is just the speculation, right? But what's interesting about that is when they talk about the mark of the beast, there is a, a, a noting that the mark of the beast appears on the foreheads and on the hands of those who follow. And so scholars in this tradition will point out that the Jews would have understood the magnitude of that symbolism because in Deuteronomy, when God gives his command to the Jews to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, he then says to them, mark your foreheads and mark your hands with that command. Meaning that for the Jewish people, all of how they thought was to be marked by the love of God, mark on the forehead, and all of what they did with their hands was to be marked by the love of God. Okay? That's, so mark those. And in contrast to that, those marked by the beast, throughout time, in the cosmic struggle between good and evil, their marking will be on their forehead, meaning that all of the way in which they think will be marked by defiance and marked by disobedience. And all of what they do with their hands will be marked by defiance and disobedience. Thus, we see in the Noah flood that all hearts were inclined towards evil all the time. And this whole cosmic struggle plays itself out time and time again. Okay. In terms of the rapture, they will say that Matthew 24 is not a passage about the rapture, but the overarching scope of the passage is about God's judgment. And that What's happening there, the ones who are being taken are actually those who are going to be judged. <laughs> it's a very different view than the other one. Right now it's like, do I want to be taken? Do I not? I don't really even know uh, anymore because scholars really tend to disagree on this. Other imagery is that Satan is the dragon in Revelation. The great harlot is Rome. The horsemen are plagues and famines. And it just goes on from there. And now that I've given you all these <laughs> details about all that stuff, it's probably a good time to just stop. And say there, there's so much more, obviously, weeks and weeks that we could walk through on this. Many interpretations, many arguments, many speculation, many churches divided over this issue of what this is to be. It's hard to know. And going back just even to that place of agreement briefly about the idea that history is spinning out of control. And I don't know how to use Revelation, and I don't know how to use Daniel to figure that out. All I can use is my mind and my, my thoughts and just to speculate a bit. And, and I don't know if this would be consistent with what you think about. But as I thought about this idea of history coming to its conclusion and things getting worse and worse, it, it's kind of hard not to read the headlines, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to not see that potential economic meltdown in Europe, and some of the terms that they even use on CNBC to describe it, financial Armageddon, right? Israel just recently lost another ally in its territory in Egypt as part of the governing change. And they're close to being surrounded without a friend in the world, which some people will say indicates that the time is near. It sure seems to me, and I don't know if it's because we have more access now or because it really is, that there is more famine and pestilence and disease around the world, that there's more wars, that levels of defiance to the kingdom of God seem to be on the increase. When you just read the headlines out of Penn State University, 
and see what's at play there repeated throughout our society. When, when you see uh, some of the greed in some pockets of the financial industry, the secularization of our world away from the church, the, the primacy of, of, of individual pleasure being what matters the most, my pursuit of happiness and how I define that should not be spoken into. I should be the one who decides my fate and what I want to do, right? That seems to be on the increase in this. And even it probably could be argued that the groans and strains of creation itself, locked in sin, that those groans are on the increase with what appear by some to be erratic, erratic weather patterns. So you can make the argument that the birth pains are increasing and you can you can make it a, a very thoughtful one. But even as I say that and even as I authentically wonder that. I think it's good to temper those thoughts with another set of thoughts and to recognize these three things. First of all, every single generation before ours has believed that the end was near. Every single generation before ours has believed that the end was near. Second and flowing from that first one, we should probably be a wee bit careful about dividing ourselves over interpretations and timelines. Recognizing that if the one we claim to serve and follow, if even he does not know the time or the hour, it seems to me to be sort of the utter height of arrogance to think that we would know. So maybe our conversations and speculations could be conducted with a bit of humility, mine included. And finally for us, and I think this is most important, is that for us as believers walking out the journey of this life, even for me so much fearful of piercing the veil, right, of having to walk it out, just thinking it would be so much easier if you had just come. I don't, I don't want to walk through the valley of the shadow. Okay, I don't want that. Please come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come now. Perhaps it's more important, though, to focus less on the when of all of this and to focus on the who. Focus less on the when and focus on the who. For our great hope is that he is coming and that he will one day make all things new. Kevin sent me a great quote from the biblical scholar as we were talking about these sermons back and forth and uh, the scholar is from N.T. Wright. And I think it speaks to the focus of the end. That as, cal- as compelled as I am by the when, that maybe I need to take some moments in my own spirit and recognize the who is really what this is all about. And N.T. Wright says this. God's intention is to put the whole of creation to rights. Earth and heaven were meant to overlap with one another. Not fitfully, mysteriously, impartially as they do at the present moment, but completely and utterly and gloriously. Someday Jesus will set all things right. So as we close this morning, a little extended conclusion, but as we close this morning, uh, I think it might be good to just take a moment to, to just sort of digest all the speculation and the theory and the arguments and the predictions aside. And just focus on this reality that one day the Holy One, the Ancient of Days, our great Father, will look over the heavens and he will say, it is time. And there will be a great stirring in the heavens, 
unlike that which has been seen before. The banquet table will be set. The heavenly hosts will gather. The trumpet will blow. (laughs) The gates will open. The sky will be rolled back like a scroll. And eternity and time will once again meld into one. And the whole world will see the return of the king. Then I, John, looked. And I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war, and his eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head there are many crowns. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beasts and the kings of this world and their armies gathered together to fight against this one sitting on the white horse and on his army. But that beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on his behalf, and they were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And with this battle complete, the great thrones of heaven were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and his throne was flaming with fire. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they could find no place to hide. And thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then the court was seated, and I looked again, and I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And this one was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You and I may not see all of this happen on this side of the veil. In fact, it's likely we won't that we, like so many before, will need to walk through the valley of the shadow and lean into our Father in the same way the Son did when he said, into your hands, Father, I now commit my spirit. We're likely going to have to do that. And as we do, I would argue that our call is to learn in ever-increasing ways to walk as those who, in Hebrews 11, walked before us, commended for their faith, their assurance of that which they hoped for, and their certainty of that which they have not yet seen. Because these people, the ancients, the text says, they are commended for seeing it from afar and walking it from a distance. Even though it was not going to be part of their reality, they kept walking it out. They did long for a better country, the text says. They longed for a heavenly one. And yet, it didn't come, but God has prepared a city for them. And for us, where this will all come to a final and glorious end. The point is not the when, the point is the who. And John says this, So then I saw this new city, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain 
For the old order of things will pass away. And he who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making everything new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Walk it out. Walk it out. I will make all things new. It's our future. It's our hope. It's the joy for which we endure in faith. I don't know when, but our king will come. And creation will be made right. And so I say with the author of Revelation, as he saw all of these wonderful visions of that which is to come, and he said, Ah, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. And yet we have to wait. So while we wait, one of the things that we do, and Beth is here somewhere, I can ask Beth to come forward for the communion table. And one of the things that's really key to part of our journey, to, to keep us oriented on the who as opposed to the when, is this idea of communion. And I see the words etched even on the front of the table that say, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And that word remembrance is such a key term as we walk out this journey to when we have to walk through the veil until this whole thing is all made new again. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you heard that word remembrance, you would know that there was a lot more at stake than just this idea of mental recall of some event in the past. That remembrance for the Jew literally meant the ability to call into our present moment the power and the events that have already happened in the past so that they're once again effective in their lives. So when Jesus says, do this remembrance of me and eat of this bread and drink of this cup and you're proclaiming my death until I come, what he's doing is call back into the present the reality of what I've already done when I started making things new and what I will do in the end. Walk it out in that way. And so we just ask and I'll pray over the elements and then you know, I can serve them that, that God would be present in this way as we do our journey. So let's stand and uh, pray and then we'll start our time of communion. God, I would ask that in the way that you do, that you would mysteriously, though really, inhabit our interactions as we take of the bread and the cup. That the power of the past in which you began making things new would once again be present in our hearts and in our minds in those places of fear and sin in which we walk, that your grace would come in the midst of those. And that in that, some measure of hope would come some measure of awareness of that to which we're called in the future. We thank you that you are making all things new. So we pray these things by the power of your spirit. Amen.